According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 4. We are wrapping up the last details of the woman at the well from verses 5 through 42. And we're going to move on to the final incident in the portion of our Harmony of the Gospels that's labeled the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Then we will, uh, depending on how long that takes, we will uh, then get our first glimpse of the Galilean ministry where we will launch into our first study of the Galilean ministry one week from today. All right, before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our time together, shall we pray? Father, we are thankful once again for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We're thankful for the uh, completed missions trip to Kiev, and we're thankful for safe journeys uh, back home. Thankful for, uh, once again, restarting this uh, Life of Christ series here on Wednesday mornings. And we are asking for your hand of blessing upon us. We are asking for uh, distractions to be set aside and for your blessing of our time of study. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the 11th chapter in the, or the 11th episode in this portion of the Harmony of the Gospels. Uh, there are 12 altogether. The next one that we look at will be called the Return to Galilee, and that will conclude this part of the uh, uh, portion of Christ's life. Okay, closing the doors is helpful for noise purposes, but it does hurt when strangers come back there. We'll just try to keep an eye on it. All right. Well, if a stranger comes in, I want to be able to see who it is. And then I can dispatch Michael and Randall. To... Right. Yeah, that way I can keep an eye on the strangers and Michael and Randall can go back there and thrash whoever needs to be thrashed. Had a good time with uh, the Bible classes we taught in Russia or in uh, Ukraine and uh, all of which were translated into the Russian language and had to get used to saying a sentence and then pausing while the translator would restate it in Russian and then say another sentence and pause while the translator. And occasionally it got to the point where I would say what I thought was a very short sentence, but the translation seemed to really go on and on and on. I'm wondering for the moment what Margaret was exactly talking about, you know. <laughs> but a wonderful, godly Christian translator, and I appreciated her very much for the work that she did. Even had a chance to play with them a little bit where I would throw out some words and phrases and things and wonder how they're going to handle it in the Russian language, things like that. And then uh, emphasizing eternal security to the children when we were giving the gospel in the uh, in the eye hospital there. And I talked about how you can never, 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 never lose your salvation. And I think I used about nine nevers, but I was listening and my translator only used maybe two or three. And so I had to stop and say, wait a minute, you left out a few nevers there. And anyway. Lots of fun. Well, let's uh, get a look at this here in John 4. We uh, really, as we were running out of time two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, wrapped up the last of this, uh, this story here from verses 39 through 42. And I want to return back to this and also spotlight a couple of other aspects that we didn't really delve into in the process of this study. So let's look, first of all, at verses 39 through 42. This is really the epilogue to the event that from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Again, the word that she testified was the word of exposure, that her adulteries had been exposed. And rather than take offense at her adulteries being exposed, she actually reacted with a positive volition. And we dealt with that from her end of things back in verse 19, where the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she is responding positively to having her adulteries exposed. She's not being offended. She's not being uh, alarmed in any way, but she's rather excited that here is a true legitimate prophet of the Most High God that clearly if he's able to expose these things of her past, then he also will have the insight from God to be able to answer her spiritual questions. Well, if her response is recorded for us in verse 19, and it is, this now becomes the response of the men Remember that she wasn't committing adultery by herself, that there were other parties involved in this behavior. And the men now 
are the ones responding in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. They have a positive volition faith response to the exposure of their activities as well. But it went beyond that because they had to listen to a message that was not just simply limited to the fact that here is somebody who could expose their sins. They had to listen to a message of additional content of divine revelation, and they did so. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. All right, Not a negative volition response that would show up and say, we don't want you around here because you can expose all of our... Uh, <laughs> You can expose all of our sins, right? You know, if you intended to continue in a sinful lifestyle, then having a prophet around who could expose it every time it happens would not be a good thing to have around. He'd be the last guy you want to have in town, and you'd say, you know, get out of here. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. But no, they want him to stay. They beg him to stay additional days because they have additional things that they want to have answered. And it says in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. All right? This woman doesn't have, uh, you know, adulterous relations with everybody in the town. Christ even pointed out that it was five and then the current one, number six. Uh, But so this forms the first of the men that come out there. But it's beyond that, as it says in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Okay, they went beyond just simply the claim. They went beyond just the the prophetic exposure if you will which is extraordinary because when he's ministering to the jewish people all too often they never get beyond the miracle they never get beyond the gee whiz value of the uh the evidence of divine power see when christ was feeding the five thousand they never went past the acknowledgement of the miracle to actually pay attention to the message and christ nailed him to the wall on that and said, you know, the miracle isn't the point. The miracle gets your attention so that you listen to the point, you listen to the message about the bread of life. And the Jews would never get past, most of them didn't get past the miracle, the gee whiz value of the, of the miracle. And all they wanted was the miracle to be done again and again and again and again. In other words, feed us. Take care of us. We don't really want to listen to what the spiritual message you're teaching, but just take care of our physical needs. Keep feeding us food. But these Samaritans, though, they got past the miracle, so to speak. They got beyond the the miraculous exposure of their sins and recognizing that he was a legitimate prophet then had content that they wanted to explore. All right. And that then becomes, um, I think, testimony to their to their faith and testimony to their positive volition. So they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know. See, now faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They have investigated the claims of what has been revealed. And that is the epitome of faith. It is placing your trust in content. It's not what the unbelievers attack us or accuse us that we have this blind faith, that we're just simply trusting based on nothing. See, trusting based on our emotions or based on our wishful thinking, what we want to be true, and so we believe it. No, uh, belief, faith is not wishful thinking based on what we want to be true, but it is the trust in what we have examined and what we have determined is objectively true. And these Samaritans, again, exemplify that. We have heard for ourselves and we know. All right? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is the application of their faith that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And their testimony to Jesus as the Christ and his role as Redeemer is most uh, remarkable as well because the Jews, for the most part, didn't get that far either. (laughs) The Jews loved the fact that their Messiah was going to be a king. They loved the fact that they were anticipating the Jewish uh, throwing off of the Roman dominion and, and the uh, preeminence of the Jewish race and the Jewish nation over the Gentile nations. Uh, but they don't, never went, most of them didn't go beyond that. The idea of the kinsman redeemer, the idea of the uh, sacrificial lamb and all these other aspects was really far from mainstream Jewish thought. But the Samaritans recognized him as the savior of the world. And uh, that also is very convicting. Now, 
some of the last details that I thought we were just in the in, in the haste to get through the material before the Kiev trip, we really um, didn't expand upon them. I want to make sure that we're solid on them here today. Uh, we've we've already dealt with the uh, aspect of work assignments and. When uh, Jesus was out there ministering to the women at the well, and the woman at the well, and the disciples were in the city buying food, that they had an opportunity to bear some fruit while they were in there, and they failed to do so. And so we'll just peek at it here briefly this morning. Um, when they come back out to him in verse 31, meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Now they start growing suspicious. You know, which one of you snuck out of town while, you know, we were all in here buying food and, and you know, brought him some food early before we all can come out together. And he says, no, no, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He, he's stressing that the priority is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He's stressing the priority like he told the devil that uh, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That the spiritual work assignment takes priority. And um, he tells them this, verse uh, 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I said, you lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And he's telling them that they blew it, that the fields are white. There's going to be a tremendous revival here in Samaria. And they had the chance to actually, in the town, they had the chance to find that positive volition and minister to it. But they didn't. Now the town men are going to be coming out and they're going to get ministered to. But they had the chance, first of all, in that town while Jesus was out here talking to this woman. Then he says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. We ought to recognize that in our work assignment of evangelism, we're not all going to be on the reaping end of things. I mean, it's fun when it happens. It's super when you can minister the gospel, for example, and see somebody believe see somebody at that moment of of conversion where they place their faith in christ and become born again that reaping moment is 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 special there's nothing like it but let's also realize that there was a whole lot of other seeds planted long before you ever came on the scene all right that other people were involved in this process and it's not about the work of, of a human being involved in this process but god's the one doing this work from beginning to end and so the one who reaps can rejoice, sure, but so too can the one who sows, they can rejoice. But now they may not know about any of this in time. They may have no idea in time about the seeds that they planted and what kind of response is going to happen years later. But in eternity, all of these things will then become evident. As it says here, gathering fruit for life eternal, that ultimately it's going to be when we're face to face in phase three that all of this fruit will then be manifest and that Christ may be ultimately gloried. One sows, another reaps. And he points out in verse 37, this is a rebuke. I'm sorry, in verse 38, I sent you to reap. Now, sent you to reap indicates that they missed their work assignment while they were in in Samaria, in this city of Shechem. Now, when they came back out and all they had with them was earthly food, they'd missed a work assignment opportunity. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. All right. So these are the things that we want to keep in our minds as we're ministering, that we are simply tools of the moment, at the moment, wherever he places us moment by moment in the Christian walk and recognizing that he's the one bringing about the perfect result. It's simply up to us to have our spiritual eyes open to see, as, as uh, uh, Christ said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. We need to have the perspective God has when the harvest is ready to be reaped and not fix it in our own mind to say, oh, well, it's they're not ready yet. There's still four months to go until the harvest. They're not ready yet. Okay, since when do we have that kind of <laughs> insider discernment in our own wisdom as far as who's ready or not ready yet to hear the gospel? So, 
A lot of lessons can be drawn out of the uh, application of this passage here. All right, then the final aspect of things, thinking back over this and the things that we had glossed over, was a passage in Deuteronomy I wanted to go to, and it just seemed week after week I kept telling myself, all right, we'll look at it, we'll look at it, and then we never did. Um, This woman is concerned about the holy mountain that she lives on and worships towards. The Samaritans had established Mount Gerizim as their holy mountain. They they, uh, revered it as a place of God's presence, Uh, They viewed it as the proper place for worship and not the Jewish place on Mount Zion. And when she finds out that Jesus here is a prophet, she has this question in verse 20. Our fathers worship in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, as a part of their religion, we we dealt a little bit in how the Samaritans formed their religion. They were kind of a uh, a mongrel race, a blended race of of assorted Assyrians and renegade Jews. They had a renegade Jewish priest trying to teach them about uh, some things of Jehovah's law. uh, So really, so the lions would quit eating them in the (laughs) in the uh, land there where they were settled. And they developed a system of religion that included some elements of Mosaic law, but also included an awful lot of the paganism they brought with them from their uh, regions of Assyria. Um, But the only aspect of the law they had was the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They rejected the writings of David. They rejected the post-Moses writings of the Jewish people as being apostasy. They said, no, no, the Jews went wrong after Moses. But if we go back to Moses, then, you know, we can trust his writings. So they had a, a version of the Pentateuch. And one of the interesting things about the Pentateuch, of course, is that... Um, It doesn't feature Jerusalem. It doesn't feature David or Solomon or the building of a temple. It doesn't feature uh, the things that the, the later Jews came to understand in terms of the land of promise. But it does feature two mountains as they were entering into the land of promise. And so if we look back to... Deuteronomy, uh, we can look at chapter 11, we can look at chapter 21. Let's go to 21. Or, uh, let's see. About, yeah, 21, also 27 and 28. A lot of places here in Deuteronomy. As they were getting ready, I think I have this loaded up on Libronics also. Yeah, let's go to Deuteronomy 27.11. Let's start there. Now, there was some information on this that had previously come out in chapter 11, verses 26 through 32. We won't turn there in this class. You can jot it down if you want to really read into this. But uh, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 11, Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So they divided out the nation of Israel, six tribes and six tribes. They divided them out, half of them to stand on Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings, half of them to stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce the cursings. And uh, the Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice. And then it goes on to deliver the uh, curses. And in verse 15, you have cursed. Cursed is the man. Verse 16, cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. All the people answer, amen. This is where this practice of amen came along. All right. And uh, cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, or widow. Amen. Okay. We go through all the cursings. And they recited these cursings as a nation together. All right. A lot of churches do stuff like this, and it's, you know, responsive reading type things, and the congregate the reading from the book, and they have the different aspects there. I'm not criticizing, mocking, or otherwise, I'm just describing. This is what some churches do, and uh, a pattern for that is not New Testament church age, but it is, there is a biblical pattern for it at, at any rate. Then the blessings come in chapter 28. 
Notice these are all conditional. It shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do his commandments, then, you know, here come the blessings. And you have, uh, you know, blessed in verse 3, blessed in verse 4, blessed in verse 5, in the uh, things that follow there. Well, anyway, as they were entering into the land, we recognize that this was a significant event under Moses' leadership to recite the cursings and the blessings, and the Mount of Blessing was indeed here in terms of Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans through the centuries then will cling to this mountain as being a mountain of blessings, and they will cling to Moses as their lawgiver, and uh, they will cling to their uh, racial background as having value, given that they have some Jewish blood mixed in with their uh, Assyrian blood. And so there is an aspect of their own racial and historical heritage that would have reason to be rather proud of this religious system that they have here, this uh, holy mountain that they have here. And they have valid reasons to be uh, appreciative of this place as being a place of blessing, at least in their minds. All right. Now, they're rejecting David, they're rejecting the Psalms, they're rejecting the writings of David, they're rejecting Solomon, they're rejecting the writings of Solomon, and so they're rejecting the Temple of Solomon, all right, as being legitimate. When you start picking and choosing which scriptures you're going to listen to and which scriptures you're going to ignore, uh, if they're valid scriptures, you're wrong for ignoring them, see. Now, uh, we understand how some of this now works if you start to cherry pick the parts of the Bible that you think are convenient enough for you to follow, and then you selectively ignore the other parts of the Bible that you just don't want to dwell on because they, you know, well, they highlight your own carnality patterns. So, you know, let's not dwell on that. (laughs) All right. Hypocritical to the maximum, we might say. So anyway, there are some texts in uh, Deuteronomy that help to explain or further illustrate uh, the Samaritans' allegiance to this uh, mountain and uh, to this worship system that they um, tried to pursue uh, throughout their throughout their history. It's interesting, though, I did point out that at this present time, there is no temple standing on this mountain because in the centuries prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, in the Maccabean era, uh, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple. The Jews uh, they threw off the Greeks. They uh, won their independence. They were allowed to cleanse their own temple in Jerusalem. And uh, not only were they allowed to cleanse their own temple in Jerusalem, but, you know, as long as we're in power, let's go ahead and... Uh, and afflict others, they went up here to Samaria and they destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So it's uh, another aspect of intertestamental history of the Maccabean era that makes for some interesting reading and does pertain to the life of Jesus Christ as we encounter these uh, particular events. All right, any questions on that? Anything at all on the Samaritan religion, on their Pentateuch, or anything at all as it pertains to that? Heidi? Verse 42, in which chapter? John 4:42. They were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe we have heard for ourselves. And we know, that's a good question. Let's look at that. We know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. John 4:42. Oida. And oidamen, first person plural, we are knowing, oida, full knowledge. Not just gnosis, not just epinosis, but the oida, full knowledge. That this one is truly, there's alethos, truly, the savior of the cosmos. So that's oida. Excellent question on, anytime you have the word no, it's always uh, interesting to see which Greek verb is employed there for the aspect of knowledge. All right, good question. Anything else? All right, then. Let's get a handle on 43 through 45, which is our last um, episode in this portion of the life of Christ, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Does everybody have a harmony of the Gospels? Do we need to get more of those printed? I think that we have some in the hallway, and 
It's not something you need on a daily basis. It's not something you need every single time you come in here. But from time to time, it is important just to kind of follow it along as a scorecard to see where we are in the overall ministry of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we we lose the forest through the trees, so to speak, when we spend so much time focusing on a tree that we've lost track of the forest. And uh, we, you know, we've been looking at this woman at the well tree and I've lost maybe the forest of the life of Christ. Well, now we're going to look at the return to Galilee tree this episode in verses 43 through 45, and this brings to a conclusion the last of this part called the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and will then launch us into the Galilean ministry, the really the largest portion of the life of Christ. All right. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. All right. Three verses and we'll spend our time dealing with the issues here. First of all, having concluded his passing ministry in Samaria, Jesus completed his journey to Galilee. Having concluded his passing ministry in Samaria, Jesus completed his journey to Galilee. I think we commented upon the value of passing ministries, the so-called chance encounters, just random occurrence of just happening to be at a well and a woman just happens to come out there to get water, see. And whereas many of us would not give that a second thought, not be thinking in terms of spiritual life, just uh, we're eager to get to where we're headed. We're going to Galilee, you know, God wants me to be in Galilee. It's the will of God for me to be in Galilee. And so we're focused on that as an objective and overlooking the process that gets us there or the ministry we might have along the way. And the fact that this chance encounter is not at all a chance encounter, but this too is a part of the will of God, that even the steps along the way in the process are important for the will of God. And all too often that gets overlooked, and we have to emphasize that. If we didn't emphasize it strongly enough in the woman at the well incident, I'm going to emphasize it here. Because all too often we'll get into a ends justify the means mentality. We may not be so bold as to verbally express that, but we start to think that anyway, that, well, the end result is what we're focused on. You know, we want to do such and such, and that's what we're focused on, and God wants us to do this, and so as long as we get there, we're there and we're in the will of God, see, and we can kind of not worry about what gets us to that point along the way, and that's totally wrong. We need to worry about what gets us to that point along the way. We need to be concerned about doing not only the right thing, but doing it in the right way, and the steps in between are just as valid. See, and it's not the case, as the world might say, where the ends justify the means and that, well, whatever it was that got you there, you're there now, so praise the Lord. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. You want to be able to praise the Lord for being where you're supposed to be, but you also want to be able to praise the Lord for the process that got you there. Now, it's true. He can overrule our negative volition. He can turn cursing to blessing. And in spite of ourselves, He can. we can praise him for getting there, even if the process along the way was wrong. But he can't praise us for the process. You see what I'm saying? We want to be able to offer praise for both the process and the result. All right. And not always, uh, you know, count on grace to bail us out that, well, OK, we've got a faulty process, but God brought about a perfect result. All things work together for good. So praise the Lord. Well, wait a minute. All right. He will work all things together for good. He will bring about glory for Jesus Christ, but at the same time, he wants us to be fellow workers involved in that process along the way to get us there. So let's not bank on the end result. Let's, uh, let's focus on the daily, because that's where the Word of God has us, on the here and now, the daily. And that means the process. Having concluded his passing ministry in Samaria. And we want to just highlight the fact that, yes, we can have ministry in passing. We should have ministry in passing. We don't want to ignore the ministry in passing. All right? Flip side of that, we don't want to dwell on the ministry in passing to where we get overwhelmed by it, where it distracts our attention and we lose sight of the ultimate objective. See, we don't want to get so sidetracked by a passing ministry that we lost the overall objective of what we were supposed to do. See, Christ did end up in Galilee where he was supposed to be. I think that's another danger there where some believers get sidetracked along the way and they say, oh, well, here's 
I'm, here's some fruit. Okay, well, let's stay here then. And let's forget Galilee. Let's set up shop in Samaria. We'll start, you know, Samaria Bible Church or something, you know, Shechem Bible Church. And, and we end up being sidetracked by what was supposed to be a passing ministry, and we turn it into into a, uh, a completed ministry. No, his completed, the, the goal was to be in Galilee, and that's where he's going to set up his ministry. This was just a passing ministry. So we want to keep those things in our perspective as well. Realizing that um, it says in verse 3 of chapter 4, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. The objective was Galilee. That was where the Father wanted him to be. And we're going to discuss that again in this context when we examine the what is he talking about when he talks about his own country and the, the lack of honor in verse 44. Jesus needed to be in Galilee. And he's going to be in Galilee for at least two more years. That's going to be the center of his ministry. It's not going to be until the third Passover comes along that he will then return to the region of Judea in order to be crucified. All right. So the bulk of his ministry, three and a half years with his disciples, most of which is going to be in Galilee. All right. So that's where he needed to be. But along the way, he had work to do as well. And uh, very important aspects of divine guidance, things that need to be considered when you do studies on divine guidance. Now, let's deal this hour with the prophet without honor proverb. The prophet without honor proverb is cited as a motivation for his Galilean relocation. I'm just simply calling, I've given it a title, I'm calling it the prophet without honor proverb. The prophet without honor proverb. And it is a proverb. He cites it. Cites it here, cites it in all four Gospels, actually. Not entirely certain where the proverb came from. It's one of those sayings that originates and gets copied and replicated many, many different times. We have them in English. We have them in American culture. We have expressions and sayings, and you wonder, well, where did that come from? And people write books telling you where they came from, but who knows if they're right, you know, because then other people write books and they dispute what the first person wrote in his book and they find competing sources or competing legends about where different sayings came from. Not to dwell on where this saying came from, but to simply recognize how it's being applied. It is a current saying. Jesus does indeed cite it. Uh, This is not Jesus citing it in this text, however. This is John recording that Jesus had testified to this truth. This is John's writing in verse 44, the Apostle John, that Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So it's an indirect citation by John citing a uh, often stated uh, proverb that Jesus had testified to. The prophet without honor proverb. It is cited here as a motivation. Jesus himself testified that. And here's the proverb. A prophet has no honor in his own country. This was a statement that Jesus had made on a number of occasions. And John is recording it here as a motivation. A motivation for the relocation to Galilee. After two days he went forth from there into Galilee for. Here's the explanatory gar. Here is the for. The statement. I think it's gar. The uh, statement in verse 44. Gar, yep, right there. It's being described as an as a motivation for the relocation. Why do people move? <laughs> you know, why do you move from one city to the next? You know, you moved from uh, Austin to wherever. Well, why? Well, for um, the better schools. We wanted our children in a better school district or for a shorter commute or for less crime or for whatever. You've got reasons for relocating. There might be good reasons. There might be dumb reasons. I don't care. They're your reasons and you relocate. That's fine. Uh, people give reasons for why they're leaving a church. Sometimes they are good reasons. Sometimes they're not good reasons. And sometimes they're not truthful reasons, say, when they're telling the pastor why it is they're leaving. All right? Well, that's something else altogether. But here is the scripture giving us the motivation for the relocation. All right? We want to make certain that we have the right reasons 
when we, uh, particularly in ministry, when we relocate, when we move from a place to a place, for example, and when Jim Myers uh, relocated, he had previously been in Belarus. He'd previously been in a city called Magalov in Belarus years ago when he was with VMI, for example. And then he left VMI and established his own mission agency and relocated from Belarus to uh, Kiev, to Ukraine. Well, why does somebody do that? Why does a missionary get relocated on the mission field? Why does a pastor get relocated from one local church to another local church? And can he do so for right reasons? Of course. Can he do so for wrong reasons? Of course. See, well, now Jesus Christ is doing these things in the will of God because he does everything in the will of God. And that's what we want to bring out in, uh, in this message here. The relocation has to be for God's reasons, not for man's reasons. <laughs> but it comes right down to it. If we're setting our mind on man's interest rather than God's, do you know what Jesus calls Peter in that instance? He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. We must be willing to submit our will to the will of God, and we're not necessarily picking out the race set before us, right? It says, run with endurance, not the race you pick out for yourself, but run with endurance, the race that is set before you. That's the course you're expected to follow. And so... Jesus is not going into Galilee because he wants to, because in his mind, this is a good career path. In his mind, this is going to be the key to, uh, to promoting his ministry. In anything, it's just the opposite. If he wanted to promote his ministry, he'd be in Jerusalem at center stage. All right? Hold your finger here in chapter 4 and just glance over a couple chapters to chapter 7. And... Uh, will identify his unbelieving brothers here. His brothers are introduced here in chapter 7 and verse 3, and we know they're unbelievers because of verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. They don't get saved till after the resurrection. We see them, fortunately, we see them in Acts in the upper room after the resurrection and ascension, and now they're saved. Now they're taking part in prayer meeting. Now they become leaders in the church and so forth. Two of them, James and Jude, even have apostolic gift and, and calling. But as of now, they're unbelievers. Okay? And so knowing effectively that they're unbelievers because of verse 5, we can read verses 3 and 4 with, uh, with the right perspective. His brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, that's their worldly approach. And what they're telling him is that Galilee is too uh, small, too out of, the, out of the way, too backwoods. There's not enough exposure. If you want to be on center stage, you need to be in Jerusalem. That's where the whole world can pay attention to your message and your ministry and your disciples. You need to be big time. You need to be in Jerusalem. All right? Be like uh, in the world of theater, you know, telling a, an actor or an actress, telling a... They don't even call them actresses anymore. They call the girls actors now too, don't they? Okay, well... Telling the performer that, you know, you want to go to Broadway. You want to be on the big stage. You want to be at the, the pinnacle of American stage. See, you don't want to be in this off, off, off Broadway minor little theater group over here. What is this? There's no exposure there. You want to be on Broadway. You want to be where all of the reviews can be written and everybody who is anybody is there in this mutual admiration society that can puff up one another and all that of that say that's what the brothers are saying in chapter 7 so now with that in mind let's look at what Jesus is saying because he's deliberately going to Galilee in the will of the father he's not staying center stage in Jerusalem he is deliberately being placed out of the limelight where he is not pursuing personal glory where he's not pursuing the, uh, so the aspects of self-promotion. He's deliberately going to this place where he's going to be rejected, but where true positive volition can then be taught. That's the difference. When he encounters positive volition in Galilee, he encounters positive volition for what it is. People that are responding to the truth, not people that are just glomming on to the excitement of the latest craze, the latest fad. 
All right. Which is why we enjoy being in Bible church ministry. <laughs> because these are ministries where believers are coming for teaching. Nobody is coming for the entertainment or for the programs or for all the, the glamour and all the, you know, come tonight and see some glamour to the, to the slideshow when you see the photographs of these Orthodox churches with all of the gold and all of the pageantry and all of the, the ritual. And all, I mean, these are some of the most glorious buildings in terms of architectural buildings on earth. Unbelievable. Well, when people come to a Bible ministry, they're not coming for the, the glitz and the glamour and the programs, say, you know, if they are, they're going to be very quickly disappointed or they have very low standards. I'm not sure which <laughs> they're coming for truth, coming for teaching. And so let's keep these things in mind here as well. Four. Jesus himself, this is the explanatory statement of going into Galilee, testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is the prophet without honor proverb, and it is the motivation. Now, it does open up some questions. It seems contradictory that he was deliberately going into a place where he would have no honor. I don't find it contradictory at all. I find it obedient. But some scholars, some uh, expositors of the text find it to be contradictory and a confusion. So let's look at it. Subpoint A. The Synoptic Gospels record this proverb after incidents of rejection. Matthew 13, Mark 6, Luke 4. The Synoptic Gospels record this proverb after incidents of rejection. Okay? And we can't overlook that because John is the fourth gospel written years after. These other three gospels have been recorded. And so you can't, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. You've got to understand that John's readers are already very familiar with the prophet without honor proverb. Because it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's take a peek at him. Matthew 13, 57. Fifty seven, not thirty seven. See in fifty four he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? All right. We assume these are married sisters now that married Nazareth uh, natives and settled down there in Nazareth. Uh, where then did this man get all these things? And, all, and they all took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All right? Rejection. It's an incident of rejection and Jesus cites the proverb. Mark 6, 4, I think is a parallel to the account we just read. Again, is this not the carpenter? Interesting, though, uh, in Matthew is called the carpenter's son. Here in Mark, he's called the carpenter. And he himself was trained in the trade that his father uh that his father worked at and he himself was trained in that trade and and up to the point where he went to be baptized to begin ministry prior to prior to being in the ministry he himself was a carpenter the son of mary brother of james and joseph and judas and simon are not uh remember she didn't stay a virgin after the birth of christ she had more babies after christ and anyway his sisters here with us they took offense at him so again here's the prophet without honor proverb and he cites, he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands on a few people, sick people and he healed them. But no great big miracles and no great big response by faith. Unbelief is mentioned in verse 6. Then in Luke 4. In Luke 4. And... Um, now he's in Capernaum. And we have a Nazareth in verse, I'm sorry, yeah, Nazareth in verse 16. Entered the synagogue, stood up, began to read. 
And then he closed the book, handed it back to the attendant. Tells him today scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Again, they're amazed. Is this not Joseph's son? And he says to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. There's another one. And then this one, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Then he goes on. He amplifies on this proverb and he points out that uh, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And uh, points out, you know, there were also many lepers in the days of Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What's he highlighting here? Positive volition. And God the Father will always supply the positive volition, no matter who it's coming from or where it's coming from. And uh, don't think because you're racially Jewish that you automatically have these blessings. So all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. <laughs> all right. Hostility. Negative response. So the Synoptic Gospels record this proverb after incidents or during incidents of rejection. Okay. But. John records this proverb after an incident of acceptance and before another incident of acceptance. John records this proverb after an incident of acceptance, all the Samaritan acceptance. And before another incident of acceptance, when he gets into Galilee, there will actually be a reception there, a positive one. Maybe we'll look at it. John records this proverb after an incident of acceptance. And before another incident of acceptance. See, he records it here in verse 44 in between two uh, incidents of acceptance. The Samaritan acceptance in verses 41 and 42. And then ultimately a Galilean acceptance in verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. So we're not identifying an incident of rejection in this chapter at all. Verse 45, again, when, the, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. And we'll have to discuss in a moment what their motivation was and look back to John 2 and recognize what the scripture says their motivation was. In any event, this proverb is coming in the midst of in between two incidents of acceptance. Now, because of that, it seems backwards, seems that things are going good in Samaria. Things are going to go good when he gets to Galilee. So why mention the prophet has no honor in his own town? Why is that proverb mentioned? In the midst of these between Samaria and Galilee, why why is it motivation for him to go into Galilee, uh, having a you know a, being a prophet without honor? How does that fit? Is this making sense? And, and a lot of a lot of uh, scholars have come to the conclusion. They say, well, it doesn't fit. <laughs> they say it must be a problem with the text. No, there's no problem with the text. It, it fits, but only if you're looking at it with divine viewpoint. Now. Some apply the his own country reference to Jerusalem. I think there's a lot to be said for that understanding. Some apply the his own country reference to Jerusalem. And they view the rejection all the way back to why he left Jerusalem, not why he was leaving Samaria, but why he was leaving Jerusalem. Because ultimately, the journey to Galilee didn't start in Samaria. The journey to Galilee started in Jerusalem. And I think that that is an important observation. Some apply the his own country reference to Jerusalem. Okay. Again, let's remind ourselves. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So the reason for departing into Galilee had a, a departure location of Judea, not Samaria. All right. 
And there is an aspect of rejection there in Judea. It was the hostility of the Pharisees. It was the arrest of John the Baptist. It was the, the, uh, the rejection there. And so that's a legitimate observation to make. Also, it's very valid. Uh, now, Christ applies the, uh, the parable when he gets rejected at Nazareth, you might expect. That's where he grew up. You know, that's where he was raised. That's where they knew him as a little kid, see. <laughs> and it's kind of, I don't teach much in Washington State. I you know, Occasionally when I get back home again, I'll be asked to speak in a church or whatever. But, you know, and I do. I'm glad to do so. But there's a little bit of objectivity problems there on the parts of some that, you know, that are remember when uh, when I was young and irresponsible, you know, and remember when I was in diapers and they say i remember you when i was watching the nursery and all kinds of other things well all right fair enough <laughs> you got a objectivity problem there you can't deal with then maybe you know good thing i'm not your pastor isn't it <laughs> i'll come and speak as a guest speaker but you know how weird might that be i don't know and, you know, how weird might it be, too, in, in the sense of for, for the pastor, for the young pastor, for example, in terms of how difficult is it to shepherd uh, folks that you were from birth trained to respect and honor and different things that I've had people in the church I grew up that insist and they, they say, oh, no, 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 you know, call me whatever, you know, call me Steve, call me Linda, whatever, you know, by their given name. And, and I just can't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you are Mr. Mitchell. You are Mrs. Mitchell. You always have been since I was a little kid. And I would never dream of calling you by your first name. That would be a a mental stumbling block I don't think I could get over. See, And now how, do you, how would you shepherd something like that, see, or a, a believer in your church like that? Well, anyway, there's reasons why the Lord tends to take pastors elsewhere from where they grew up. Not always, but tends to. And uh, so when Christ is rejected at Nazareth, he will cite that. And people can't get over the fact that this carpenter kid is now somehow a Bible preacher. Who does he think he is? Where did he get that kind of knowledge? He's a carpenter's kid. He's a carpenter. And they can't get over the fact they know his brothers, and aren't they a handful, and they know his sisters, okay? And they still to this day talk about the scandal of his mom, who was clearly pregnant before the before the actual wedding took place. Everybody knows that, you know. They talk about it. They whisper about it. They're going to throw it in his face here in a little bit. All right. So the the dishonor is is obviously it's there in Nazareth, and he'll cite the proverb there in Nazareth. He'll say, "Hey, it's my hometown. What do you expect?" But the question is, is this really his hometown? Is this his hometown? Where was he born? He was born in Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in... So in reality, what's his own country? When it says a prophet is without honor in his own country, well, Judea certainly applies, given that's the place of his birth, and that's the place, the ministry of the prophets. All right? Galilee wasn't renowned for their prophets, but Judea was. Point D. Some apply his own country reference to Nazareth. And they give this as an explanation for his settling at Capernaum. So some apply the his own country reference to Nazareth. And give this as an explanation for his settling at Capernaum. And so they try to split Galilee into a fine uh, distinction between Nazareth and Galilee and Capernaum and Galilee. And say, well, he was rejected at Nazareth, but he was accepted in these other places in Galilee. All right. <laughs> Never mind all the woe pronouncements upon the different places in Galilee, like Capernaum and the other places that had miracles done in them and still didn't respond. There's problems with that view, though. First of all, there's this text doesn't discuss a division between Upper and Lower Galilee. It doesn't discuss a division between Nazareth and Capernaum or Cana, for example. When, in fact, when he first comes into Galilee, he's going to return back to Cana which we'll see when he meets this, uh, this fellow here in verse 46. Comes again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and this royal official he's going to encounter here in a moment. There's really no reason in this text to draw such a distinction in the regions of, of Galilee, but some people try to. 
Now this, by doing so, sub point one, this is consistent with the synoptic accounts. And so they can harmonize the John reference with the Matthew, Mark, and Luke references and, and just tie it in with a rejection at Nazareth. They make it consistent with the synoptic accounts. <laughs> the problem is, is he's not even in Nazareth in this context. Hasn't gotten that far. He's leaving. He left Judea. He's leaving Samaria. He's going into Galilee and he's arriving at Capernaum. He hasn't come anywhere near. I mean, he's arriving at Cana. Uh, we'll end up in Capernaum in this chapter. He's not coming anywhere near Nazareth in this chapter. But they try to interpret it to make it consistent with the synoptic accounts. And that's just a faulty interpretation. Secondly, it fails to acknowledge that Capernaum was also his own. They selectively overlook the fact that Capernaum becomes his own country, becomes his own city. It becomes his home. Capernaum was also his own. And I think we need to leave the proverb for what it is. It's a proverb. It is a motivation. We'll give this to you in the conclusion. It is a motivation, but it's a motivation to Christ to stay faithful in spite of the truth of this proverb. That he is going to be without honor in Galilee, just like he was without honor in Jerusalem, just like he's going to be without honor in wherever he sets up, Capernaum, which he sets up as a base of operations. The moment he makes a place his home, he's going to encounter opposition. Matthew 9.1 calls Capernaum his own city. Mark 2.1 says he comes home to Capernaum. So when we, when we key in on phrases like um, in his own country in verse 44, we um, have to guard against simply a, uh, a superficial understanding of what that means and ignore other places where cities are called his own. I can show you where Jerusalem was called his own or Nazareth, obviously, was called his own. Capernaum is called his own. Here you have the verses there to sustain that. Matthew 9, 1, Mark 2, 1. All right. And the proverb is applicable wherever he goes. When he sets up base in, in Capernaum, that now becomes his own. And he will find that he's going to be without honor there as well. Well, some of that will come up also. Point three. The prophet without honor proverb demonstrates... That Jesus was willing to obey the Father's will for a Galilean ministry. Even though he understood that it would entail conflict and rejection. And I think that's ultimately what we want to get out of this proverb being cited here. That even though he knows a prophet is without honor in his own town. He's going to go to Galilee anyway. He is going to accept the without honor ministry of Galilee. Because that's the Father's will. If he was pursuing his own will, he would have stayed in Jerusalem. Like his unbelieving brothers were suggesting in chapter 7. That's where the, the, the limelight would be. That's where the glory would be. That's where his throne was. Remember, he's the son of David. <laughs> and a minister in Jerusalem, where the throne of David belongs, and to see... No son of David on the throne of David to see a Roman throne instead. You know, a selfish son of David would be quite angry over such a thing. And if Jesus was going to depart from the will of the father and, and uplift himself, promote himself, then he wouldn't leave Jerusalem to go to Galilee. He'd stay right there in Jerusalem. He would take hold of that throne himself. So what Judas Iscariot wanted him to do. It's what the zealot wanted him to do. All right. I think this prophet without honor proverb is demonstrating. Because it is given as an explanatory guard. It is given here as a motivation for the arrival into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And that he understood that the Galilean ministry would have rejection. He would be rejected, hated. But he went anyway. Notice there's a have to statement back in verse four. I think we spotlighted it when we looked at it. He had to pass through Samaria. 
There will be other incidents of that as well. He had to go into the wilderness. I think that was um, the uh, Mark account. He was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He had to go. And um, Mark 1.12, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. Matthew 4, he was led, led up by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When Jesus Christ submitted his will to the Father for the geographic will, he had to go to the places the Father directed. He had to go through Samaria because there were people there who needed to be saved. He had to go into Galilee because there's people there who need to be saved. Does that mean there's conflict? Well, he had to be afflicted. He was part of the, part of the plan of God. Finally, as we look at this Galilean reception, the Galilean reception was based upon their observation of his miracles in Jerusalem. Let's take note of that. It's not necessarily the peachy reception that uh, some people like to turn it into. That, oh, here's this positive volition. They're glad to have the Christ with them. They're hungry for teaching. No. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And notice his exasperation very quickly here in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So this reception in verse 45 is not necessarily a rosy reception of positive volition. And again, even back when he was in Jerusalem and the reception that he had there. Chapter 2, verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people are excited about the miracles. They want to promote him as their king. And he wasn't entrusting them when he was in Jerusalem, but he went out and started that baptism ministry with his disciples. And he's certainly not going to entrust himself to the, to the uh, excitement of the, of the uh, process here when uh, he encounters them in Galilee. So we're going to deal with this as well. All right, I will close with this. The genius of the fourth gospel has an interesting comment on this passage. This is, uh, let me back up. This is um, warning me not to follow the hyperlink. Well, I want to follow the hyperlink. All right. The genius of the fourth gospel is a, it's a devotional commentary on the gospel of John. It's not entirely, they have headings called exegetical remarks. I haven't found it to be overwhelmingly exegetical. It's more devotional. Um, the only que difficult question in connection with this passage is this. What does the heavenly teacher here mean by his country, the Hatridi? There are several uh, answers presented by different biblical critiques to this question. Galilee is to be taken in opposition to Nazareth. In uh, this city, his own country, Jesus had no honor, but elsewhere in Galilee he was received as a prophet. And that's kind of the approach that Lightfoot took and Kraft took. Secondly, Galilee is to be taken in opposition to Judea. Judea was his birthplace and so his own country. And if it was also the land of the prophets, but there he had found no reception and he had been compelled to discontinue his ministry. In Galilee, on the contrary, all were ready to honor him. And that was Ebrand and Norton's assertion. I would dispute that all were ready to honor him because we saw that a few of them wanted to drive him off a cliff. <laughs> all right. And then thirdly, Galilee is his own country where, according to the proverb, he would have no honor, except he had first gone to Judea and distinguished himself there. It was his miracle and works abroad that gave him fame and favor at home. And I thought that was an interesting observation that, yes, had he just simply stayed home, he wouldn't have had any honor. But by virtue of the celebrity he achieved in Jerusalem, then he was able to come back to Galilee and they observed those wonders and they said, oh, yeah, this was the... The, this is the local boy made good that made that big splash up there in Jerusalem. And now he's coming back kind of thing. Okay. I got something to be said for that. That was Meyer and Alford. But then the conclusion in terms of um, 
the genius of the fourth gospel and the author of this text, we do not regard the subject of sufficient importance to canvas these conflicting views or to advocate or propound a conclusion of our own. I thought, what? We do not regard the subject of sufficient importance. It's only the word of God. That's not important enough to canvas these conflicting views or to advocate or propound a conclusion of our own. I just thought, well, isn't that a statement? All right. I think that the scriptures are important and that all scripture is God breathed and profitable. And that includes a little transition text like verses 43 through 45 that tells us that he's passing from Samaria to Galilee and why he's passing from uh, from Samaria to Galilee. The explanation being for a prophet has no honor in his own town. And I want to understand why that was given there as a motivation for him to go to Galilee. And I uh, would disagree with this commentary that says uh, we do not regard the subject of sufficient importance. Really? Well, I do. I think it is sufficiently important. And I think it is telling that even knowing that he would be dishonored in his home country, he knew that's where the father wanted him to be. And so he went there. And that's remarkable. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We do thank you for your faithfulness to guide us in the truth. And, and we pray as we uh, move on now into the Galilean ministry. Father, we're going to see we're going to see all kinds of things. We're going to see feeding of 5000. We're going to see walking on water. We're going to see uh, some of the most spectacular miracles and some of the most well-known stories. Father, we're going to see uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see the uh, uh, so many stories really some of the most well-known incidents in the life of Christ. And I pray that we would not be distracted by the stories, dazzled by the miracles, but, Father, uh, that we would be focused on the teaching, that we would be humbled by the content and convicted by the application. And we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.